From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, October 4th. I'm Marco Wormuth. Americans weren't the only ones watching last night's debate. In China, people watched with their own political transition in mind. It's a very opaque process. It's a very highly orchestrated process. So I think that this sort of open debate is very rare in China, and it's kind of refreshing to watch. And later, why Turkey felt it had to respond to Syria's shelling, not doing so carried a political price tag. It would have been extremely damaging. There have been already criticism against the government that it was too soft. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama and Republican nominee Mitt Romney kept at it today. They continued where their first debate left off last night, accusing each other of getting it wrong on the economy. As the faceoff in Denver made clear, the state of America's economy is the issue in the campaign. That doesn't mean the debate lacked any mention of international issues. In a few minutes, we'll hear about two lines from last night that definitely got attention overseas. First, though, we turn to one aspect of the global economic crisis that could have a big impact on the U.S. recovery, and that is Europe's struggle to deal with its ongoing debt crisis. The European Union's strategy so far has been to offer bailouts to its most indebted members. But as more countries line up for the help, bailout fatigue is growing in Germany, Europe's strongest economy. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Munich in the rich German state of Bavaria. In an industrial park on the outskirts of the Bavarian capital, two brothers, Martin and Richard Progel, are busy running their small parcel delivery business and worrying about the news that Germany might once again be asked to shell out billions in bailouts for Greece, for Spain. We can't afford it. That's Martin Progel. And solidarity doesn't mean uh, hiding problems and not solving them by putting money on top of it. If you have a big hole in the boat, just get more velocity is not the solution. (laughs) Richard Progel is more direct. Greece did something like cheated in to the Eurozone, and solidarity, in my point of view, uh, has nothing to do with self-service. What they do is they take our money without asking us. The Progel family and its successful business typify Bavaria. It's Germany's richest state and the most resistant to more Eurozone rescues. Opinion polls suggest the vast majority of Bavarians feel they've already done enough, Munich economist Hans-Werner Zinn says he understands why. Uh, The amount of money which has been lent is uh, more than many people know. Germany alone provided 750 billion euros to other countries. This is going out of hands. 
No one knows this more than Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel. Merkel is loath to go back to Germany's parliament, the Bundestag, to sell them on the B word again. It will be especially tough if Spain signs up for a rescue, as it has the Eurozone's fourth largest economy. Hence, in recent weeks, Merkel's cabinet members have been publicly downplaying Spain's problems. Finance Minister Wolfgang Schäuble recently told Bloomberg that Spain was sound enough to avoid seeking outside help. I belong to those who say we should do everything to convince the financial markets that this speculation against Spain is without any real basis. Some would argue otherwise. Spain is in a double-dip recession with unemployment near 25 percent. Its long-term interest rates are perilously high. But Chancellor Merkel faces re-election at home next year. As she struggles to find a balance, the danger is that the key Bavarian vote could turn against her. Florian Wieber heads a small political party for Bavarian independence. He says Bavarians feel bilked twice. First, they watch billions of euros being sent to profligate neighbors. And second, as Germany's richest region, they pay more in federal taxes than they get back. Bavaria pays a lot of money to the federal state. In a year, for example, 31 billions. We pay much more, but the, the difference is 31 billion. It's obvious Weber's arguments are gaining traction, even if secession is a long shot. On a recent afternoon, Weber is out on Munich's main square handing out leaflets. The Bayernpartei is small. In the last elections, it only got 1.5% of the vote. But Weber says amidst the chatter in recent weeks about possible bailouts for Cyprus, Spain, and Greece yet again, more people than ever are joining his ranks. It's, it's, it's unbelievable the last uh, seven days, about 100, 150 people more in a week, in the party. Joined your party? Yeah. In one week? In one week, and it's never happened before. Yeah? We are very astonished and happy about it, of course. Yeah? But it, it shows something is changing. One thing that isn't changing is the direction of the debt crisis. The Spanish and Greek economies are sliding as austerity measures push growth out of reach. Again, economist Werner Zinn. In retrospect, it was a mistake to introduce the euro with so, so many countries. But now we have done it, and you cannot just say we dismantle the whole thing. If you have a cake made from different ingredients, you cannot uh, reverse this process and, and get the ingredients out of it again. So we have to find a way with the euro rather than escaping uh, out of the euro. His solution let struggling countries leave the euro, but just long enough to devalue, regain competitiveness, and clean house. Then they're back in the club without endangering European integration. The world's Jerry Haddon just back from Germany with that report. Jerry, you're now back at home base in Spain. I'm curious uh, what you've heard from Spaniards about this moment in last night's presidential debate here in the U.S. Spain, Spain pen- spends 42% of their total economy yeah. on government. We're now spending 42% of our economy on government. I don't want to go down the path to Spain. I want to go down the path of growth that puts Americans to work with more money coming in because they're working. That, of course, was Governor Mitt Romney in last night's presidential debate. Jerry, did folks in Spain pick up on that reference? Yeah, just about everybody did, from the media to the government to ordinary citizens. And reactions have ranged from anger to dismay at being the only European country mentioned last night in the entire debate, and as a synonym for failure, as the daily El País put it this morning. Another conservative uh, website called Digital Liberty said, 
not Greece nor Afghanistan, referring to two other countries decidedly worse off than Spain. And the government responded quite angrily. One of the uh, leaders of the conservative government said that Spain is not engulfed in flames and that such comments only damage the country's reputation. So there's been a lot of buzz in Spain about the, the very brief comment that Romney made. And I think it sinks even deeper because Spain has had bragging rights, actually, for the past four years since candidate Obama mentioned Spain positively in a 2008 debate. He lauded its renewable energy policy. So the comments last night were disappointing. And Jerry, how do Spaniards feel in general about how they're being depicted these days as, you know, being a synonym for failure? Well, it depends who you talk to. You know, there's a conservative government here in Spain uh, run by Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy. His supporters, they're ticked off at the coverage, uh, not only the comments by Romney, but the recent press coverage, I think, by some of the major U.S. news outlets. There's been a bit of a row here because uh, the New York Times has run in the last couple of weeks a couple of different articles one criticizing the sort of path of austerity that Spain is heading down and predicting doom and gloom in the long run. And another was a, a photo essay of black and white images uh, called Austerity and Hunger. And among the images, you see a man scavenging for food in a garbage container, a family about to be evicted from their home and so on. And so the conservatives here are saying, you know, Spain is there's been a bunch of selective editing going on and Spain's being uh, unfairly portrayed as a nation on the brink of utter disaster. On the left, however, you have people saying, well, this is interesting because when Spain was in big trouble and the socialists were in power just, just a couple of years ago, the conservative press uh, was, wasn't complaining at all. So you have to kind of uh, know who you're talking to or who you're reading. The world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Thanks as always, Jerry. Thanks, Marco. As far as the community of nations, Spain got the worst of it last night. But Mitt Romney also managed to get in a shot at China, asserting he would crack down on China if and when they cheat. Governor Romney probably didn't know it, but it turns out there were a lot of people in China watching the debate, lighting up social media with their real-time reactions. Lily Kuo is a reporter for Quartz, a global business website that launched last week. She's been following the Chinese social media reaction to the U.S. debates, and she joins us now to talk about that. Give us a sense, Lily, of scale here. How big a topic was the U.S. presidential debate on Chinese social media? How many people were talking about it? So if you looked at the posts for... Uh, the U.S. presidential election on Sina Weibo today, there were 1.2 million hits. Last night, if you searched for Obama's name, it came up with more than 9 million. If you searched for Romney's name, it came up with 700, a little under 700,000 hits. And that, that sounds like big numbers. Are they big for China on, on this kind of topic? Uh, I'd say that's actually pretty average, but this is a hot topic. So uh, the first thing we want to know, uh, overall reactions, but who did the Chinese think won the debate? You know, I'd say that's pretty even. I think that people were uh, a little disappointed with Obama. People were saying that he had lost his edge and things like normally eloquent Obama, you know, seemed to suffer under the stress. Um, and people but people also were uh, not that impressed with Romney. Some people said that he seemed, um, you know, just not very natural or, you know, didn't have the sort of a genuine charisma. And, and apparently one uh, user of Weibo is plugged into U.S. football. Obama's debating is as bad as the New York Jets offense. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> now, uh, what did people make of the format of the debate, the style of the men? Is there anything like this that they can compare it to? You know, I don't I don't think that there is. Um, as you know, China is going through its own leadership transition, and it's a it's a very opaque process of how the next leaders are picked, how the Chinese next Chinese officials are chosen. Um, it's a very highly orchestrated process. 
So I think that this sort of open debate is uh, is very rare in China, and it's you know kind of refreshing to watch. Right, and and also refreshing is uh, one uh, one person on Weibo was impressed by the background to the debates. I mean, like the, the the screen behind the two candidates. What was that about? Right, so that's actually one of my favorite favorite posts.、Uh, a user by the name of Wang Ran said that, you know, he wasn't that impressed with anything that Obama or Romney said, but he. But the words of the U.S. Constitution that he could see in the background of the debate were what impressed him, and he was saying, you know, this is this for America. This is a luxury. This is their blessing. They they don't have to worry about、uh, the stability of their political system. They don't have to worry that things that they say are going to erupt into social instability.、Um, so they can just get down to business and talk about taxes, the deficit, healthcare, education, or, or what have you.、Mm, perhaps a romantic view of、uh, American democracy, but it's still kind of poignant. <laughs> that- Um, Lila, you've been observing Chinese social media for a while. What surprised you most about the reactions from China to the debates? What, what? There wasn't really anything that surprised me because I think that Chinese social media, especially the users on Weibo, they're very smart. They are.、Um, they're very young. They're very tuned into the news around the world.、Um, so, so they're ironic. They're smart. They're very observant. Actually, you know, one thing that's interesting—you you asked about the format—and one one person said that they、um, they kind of they kind of wished that it was more like an X Factor type of show. And they, they said, you know, if every <laughs> every American voter should get a chance to sit in the seat where the host sits and then and test their you know their verbal skills and you know see how they do. And then when they do something good, they can spin around and say, okay, okay, I want you. <laughs> yeah, what's that show? The The Voice, where you don't see the actual performer, and then you kind of you, you hear something, and you kind of yeah, I, I like that. What a novel idea! <laughs> yeah, maybe we should try that. <laughs> Lily Kuo, a reporter with Quartz, a new global business news site sponsored by the Atlantic Magazine. Thanks so much. Good to talk with you. Thanks very much. You can listen to more of our coverage of China and the U.S. election online. Flip through the world on the popular Flipboard app. Now featuring a really cool audio player. Download Flipboard for your iPad, iPhone, or Android device at flipboard.com/theworld. Still ahead on the program, violence from Syria spills into Turkey, and Turkey strikes back. On PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes: A diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. The FBI offered a $50,000 reward this week for information leading to the arrest of a U.S. citizen wanted on terrorism charges. The suspect is Ahmad Abu Samra, who fled his home in Massachusetts in 2006. He's known to be an associate of Tarek Mahana, another Massachusetts resident who was jailed in April of this year for 17 years. Mahana was convicted of providing material support to terrorists and conspiracy to kill in a foreign country. Abu Samra is indicted on the same charges. His indictment was issued in 2009. What's new in the story is the reward and the appeal to the public here and around the world for information. Richard Delorier is a special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston division, which is handling the case. Now, you say、uh, he's one of the top wanted people in the United States, but、uh, prosecutors in the Tarek Mahana trial said that、uh, these two guys couldn't even locate the terrorist training camps in Yemen and Pakistan.、Uh, other reports say they were actually rejected. 
by al-Qaeda. Why take them so seriously? What, what, what's so dangerous about them? Well, the nature of these charges, Marco, are very serious. Uh, these, these are serious counts to include conspiring to kill U.S. soldiers overseas and to provide material support to a terrorist organization, namely al-Qaeda. Uh, he repeatedly, Mr. Abbasama, repeatedly traveled overseas to Yemen, Pakistan, and then subsequently to Iraq to carry out global harm against U.S. soldiers. So we consider these charges to be very, very serious, and we are initiating a worldwide uh, manhunt for him uh, via our global uh, media campaign that is being launched this week. And yet he was not put on a watch list. Why not? There are a variety of factors, Marco. They go into that decision. Uh, and in this case, uh, we did, chose not to for, for a variety of operational reasons. I see you brought in a, a loose-leaf notebook that says Abu Samra publicity campaign, and that's an angle to the story that we we want to pursue. This appeal to people overseas and here in the states through social media—how unprecedented is this? And how do you how will you manage the tips? This is a, a, a something that the FBI has embracing over the, the last several years, Marco. The use of social media—we have vigorously embraced it as a leading way for law enforcement to disseminate information on a global scale, particularly and is particularly effective in attempting to allow us to apprehend fugitives, either domestically here inside the United States or worldwide. Uh, combining the reach and power of all media platforms is a powerful way to inform the public about our searches for fugitives across the globe. And in addition to traditional media, we are using uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all forms of social media to disseminate information regarding Mr. Rambosamra. The FBI itself has over seven, uh, close to 700,000 Twitter and Facebook users, so we feel we have a broad audience we traditionally had not been able to reach in the era before social media. And is that just in English? I believe it's primarily English. However, the wanted poster for Mr. Abu Samra is being disseminated in English, Arabic, and French to assure, ensure the broadest audience possible who uh, uh, would be position, best positioned to possibly report information on him. So as of this morning, the FBI has uh, 271,000 likes on Facebook, and I think most organizations would be pretty uh, excited by that. But uh, do you know how many are overseas, and is that ultimately a critical mass for real assistance? We think it is. Uh, really, the, the our, our reach overseas in the past using traditional media had been limited. There are many parts of the world that we had not been able to reach via social media, but this considerably broadens our reach across the world stage. Not all countries permit the same access to social media as others. We realize we can't possibly reach everybody. However, our universe has uh, shrunk, shall we say, in terms of those who we can reach, and, and we're now, uh, now now far more reachable than they had been in the past. Now, uh, Tarek Mahana, uh, Abu Samra's convicted collaborator, has uh, the support committee, which uh, responded to yesterday's appeal for help uh, w with this statement, saying it was all part of a government campaign. And they said, quote, it's to distract us all from the ongoing U.S. occupation and bombing of Muslim countries and the Islamophobic attacks on Muslims here in the United States. That was the end of the quote. Could you comment on that? Uh, that's something probably, Marco, I think uh, speaks for itself. Uh, Mr. Mahana has been convicted in a court of law here inside the United States and has been sentenced to a term of 17 and a half years in a federal penitentiary for his actions. And I think those facts speak for themselves. Richard Delorier, special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston Division. They're handling the case of Ahmad Abu Samra. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you so much, Marco.
We're switching gears now for our geo quiz. The Triple Crown isn't just a horse racing thing. It's also what a baseball player wins when he ends up tops in his league for batting average, RBIs, and homers. And Miguel Cabrera of the Detroit Tigers just finished the regular season, leading the American League in all three of those categories. Cabrera is the first player to clinch the Triple Crown since 1967 and the first Latino to do so ever. It's a huge deal for baseball fans everywhere, including those in Cabrera's native Venezuela. The question for you is, where in Venezuela is he from? It's near the Caribbean coast, and it's the capital of Aragua State. Okay, answer coming up in just a bit. First, let's hear about reaction in Venezuela to Miguel Cabrera's Triple Crown. Reporter Sarah Granger is in Caracas for the BBC. Everyone here who follows baseball, and that's a lot of people because it is the national sport in Venezuela, extremely proud of what he's done. One of the major sports dailies here splashes across its front page. Miguelito made history. And apparently Hugo Chavez is pretty stoked about it too. He is. He's a big baseball fan and actually, you know, has been pictured often in, in the press uh, playing a bit of softball himself or throwing a baseball around. Um, it really is the national number one sport here, unlike a lot of the rest of Latin America where uh, soccer is the main game. Um, and Venezuela is an important source of players for, for the major league teams. Uh, second only, I think, to the Dominican Republic in the number of players it sends to the states every year. So really is a, is a major achievement for any player, any Venezuelan player who makes it to the major league. And so to sort of come out tops like this uh, is really unbelievable. So even with a presidential election this weekend, uh, the Cabrera story still made big ripples in Venezuela, huh? It did. I mean, you could have wished that it had happened to him at a slightly different moment because uh, we are in the midst of presidential elections. Today, actually, is the final day of campaigning for for all of the candidates. So, you know, lots of people, their minds on that. Um, But even so, you know, anyone who follows sport here um, is, you know, well aware of of what this means and and what a big moment it is um, in the history of the sport, as well as for this individual, as well as for Venezuela. Sarah, do Venezuelans chafe at the fact that their best baseball players are leaving the country to find glory and and big money in the U.S.? I think that most people realize that it's a great opportunity for those players who who do get to go, and they're incredibly proud of those who who make it that far. Venezuela's hosted a lot of major league teams' training camps here for a long time, Um, and actually in recent years those have dwindled. A lot of the teams have found it very difficult to operate in Venezuela. Security's been a particular problem, and if you'll remember uh, just under a year ago, actually Wilson Ramos, who's Mm. a, a major league player, was actually kidnapped from his home when he came back to Venezuela uh, in the off-season. So that's been an issue. But the Detroit Tigers actually is one of the teams that stuck it out, who, who still has a training camp here in, in the west of the country um, and who still feels that, you know, it's, it's very much worth their while and, and they can find great players here and they offer those players an amazing opportunity. Now, as you said, uh, Cabrera plays for the Detroit Tigers, but his hometown is Maracay in Venezuela. That's the answer to the GeoQuiz, by the way. Uh, Does Cabrera still go back to his hometown of Maracay? Yeah, and a lot of the the players actually do come back, and and some actually play here um, in the off-season in the States. It's the season here in Venezuela, so uh, that movement back and forth happens uh, quite a lot. BBC reporter Sarah Granger speaking with us from Caracas, Venezuela. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how some in India express their post-colonial self-confidence. If I look at my cousins in India, I think they feel today more comfort speaking English and mixing Hindi into their English and speaking without a British accent. And later, what happens when you mix the Beatles with Fela Kuti's Afrobeat? PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The conflict in Syria has, for the most part, stayed in Syria, but a deadly attack now risks expanding the conflict. Yesterday, shells fired from Syria fell on a border town in Turkey, killing five civilians. Syria has admitted responsibility and apologized, but for two days now, Turkey has responded by firing on targets inside Syria. And today, Turkey's parliament authorized military operations against Syria. Suat Kinikleoglu is a former deputy chairman of external affairs for Turkey's ruling AK party. I think it is a demonstration by the Turkish government that it is ready to act militarily if it needs to do so. The situation is extremely volatile. Turkey has 910 kilometers of a land border with Syria. And in the absence of a United Nations Security Council resolution, uh, an unwillingness uh, by the United States and many of our European allies to act, Turkey has to take measures and uh, project its deterrence capability to the Syrian regime. For Prime Minister Erdogan, how politically difficult would it be for him to not respond to Syria's uh, shelling? It would have been extremely damaging. There have been already uh, criticism against the government that it was too soft, um, that the government's Syria policy was uh, not going anywhere. And I think as the uh, parliament has taken the decision to authorize the government and immediately after the Syrian regime apologizing for the incident, I I think the government now has seen the rewards of its uh, quick uh, and determined action. So just after the shelling, uh, immediately after the shelling, NATO held an emergency meeting. Do you know if Turkey was consulted uh, during that meeting about what to do? Yes, of course. Turkey wanted to know its allies what has happened and uh, draw the attention of NATO allies to the volatility and uh, the threat that a NATO member is uh, confronted with. But Turkey had no interest in calling for NATO to intervene at this time. Uh, We know the sensitivities within NATO, but um, there is an expectation here in this country that after the U.S. presidential election, that there might be a more forthcoming U.S. policy. But this is obviously unclear whether this will actually happen or not at this time. So the fact that Turkey's parliament uh, enacted this bill to uh, use military force against Syria, I mean, would Turkey be willing to go it alone over the next year? No, Turkey would not. Turkey uh, has a historical baggage of being a ruler, of of being an, an empire in the region. So it's not at all in the cards that Turkey would go alone in there. But Turkey will seek regional solutions, uh, is is already uh, talking to neighbors and others who are interested in finding a regional solution for a transition in Syria. There is quite a bit of frustration uh, that no UN Security Council resolution can be produced under the current positions. 
there seems to be a lack of interest for a coalition of the willing. It only leaves the option of regional countries to find a solution to a very complicated issue called Syria. So military action aside, meantime, there are all these rising tensions inside Turkey over the number of refugees from Syria. That's about 90,000 people at this point. They're fleeing the fighting and crossing into Turkey. Is there still support in Turkey for the refugees fleeing the conflict? There have been some problems, but to be fair, uh, housing 90,000 people is not an easy task without any external help. And I think overall, the United Nations has confirmed that the situation is rather well, but um, it's rather difficult to manage both the refugee crisis and the uh, direct threats emanating from the other side of the border simultaneously. And I think Turkey is going to continue to grapple with it if the situation is not returning to normality in Syria. Suat Kinikliyoglu is a former deputy chairman of external affairs for Turkey's ruling AK party. Syrian rebel forces have long been crossing the border into Turkey. Some of their commanders are even based there. Last month, the Free Syrian Army's Supreme Military Council announced it was moving its command center from Turkey to the countryside in northern Syria. The move was meant to consolidate forces inside Syria. But as Shira Frankel reports from Antakya, Turkey, it may be hard to bring many ragtag rebel units into the fold. At least half a dozen Syrian rebel fighters regularly gather at this hotel to trade notes, and at least a few barbs. Nearly each table has a laptop as they show off their latest footage of their fighting units, or katibas. Mohammed Zatar is a commander of the Al-Rab Wolf's Brigade in Hama. He shows off the video of his unit's exploits to Jamil, a well-known Syrian activist in Antakya. Jamil nods and explains to me that this is clearly a real katiba. Sometimes 15 to 20 percent just release a video about establishing a katiba but they're not real. They're not active. Jamil runs a project trying to categorize and verify the various rebel fighting units in Syria. To date, he says, more than 800 katibas have cropped up, but he's dubious about many of them. The general idea of the katiba is that it must be more than 100 people. The difference between real and not real is that half are actually fighting on the ground and the other half are just collecting weapons, or they're fake altogether. Over the past six months, videos posted online have shown everything from units posing with plastic replica guns to a one-man katiba asking for Saudi cash to defend his textile factory. But even the units that are fighting can be something of a joke. There's no order, there's no structure. Alex is an ex-Marine who served two tours of duty in Iraq. He asked not to use his real name to protect his identity, since he's been helping the rebels. He knows people think he's a spy, but he says he simply felt solidarity with the rebels' cause and figured they could use his expertise. Well, if you figure it's like a woman on the side of the road that doesn't know how to change her tire, she's got a flat tire and a car full of children, you know what I mean? If I know how to change a tire, why not help? Within the first few days, he realized that the level of violence in Syria was greater than anything he had ever seen in Iraq. I saw more in five days than I've seen my whole time, all my tours in Iraq. He describes scenes of massive civilian casualties and destroyed cities. While he couldn't do anything to stop the regime, he says he could offer basic training to the Syrian rebel units. We would drive around to different battalion units, you know, around the border and then around the different parts of the city. And I'd give classes, you know, just just basic maneuvers and and things like that. He says that most units, even if they were involved in the fighting, 
had never gotten even the most rudimentary military training. So he helped. Like breaking it down, yeah. This is a good sniping position. This is a, a good way to move from A to Z. This is, you know, get, like keep your house clean. Like, or you guys are going to get sick. You're living on top of each other. Just ev- everything, you know what I mean? Like, don't fight in your sandals, you know what I mean? <laughs> and they, wouldn't, they didn't want to let me go. Alex says he saw rampant jealousy and infighting between the units, including those that were meant to be fighting in the same area. There are serious issues about how the Syrian rebel units are structured. He describes driving out of Aleppo one night to try and convince the head of a well-funded katiba to transfer some weapons to a unit fighting inside the city of Aleppo in desperate need of guns. We're in the middle of the desert, and we drive, and it's all farm, and then there's a villa with a big wall. This is like a move, like in Scarface. I mean, you know, they're all sitting around in their tracksuits and, like, comfortable, you know, very comfortable outside of this city. And, yeah, this guy was, like, not going to budge. We sat there for an hour and a half, two hours. The incident showed him the lack of cooperation and unity on the Syrian rebel front, and it left him wondering whether they're going to make it. For now, Alex is planning his next trip back in to help. For The World, I'm Shira Frankel. Aleppo is now one of the main fronts in the Syrian conflict. Today, government forces shelled rebel-held parts of the city again. Yesterday, a series of suicide bombings targeted a government-held area, and the death toll in Aleppo is climbing with each passing day. So is the cost to the city's cultural heritage. As we reported earlier this week, the city's medieval souk, or covered marketplace, was severely damaged by fire, sparked by the fighting. Michael Dante is very familiar with Aleppo Souk and its other cultural treasures. He's an archaeology professor at Boston University, specializing in the ancient Near East, and he spent 20 years working on an archaeological site by the Euphrates River near Aleppo. The Souk was a, a living museum. It was a warren of vaulted corridors and shops, and we would drive in to outfit our expedition. The souk was divided into a number of different marketplaces, and each one specialized in a different commodity or a different type of good. So we would go to the blacksmith shops to get picks and shovels. We would go to the Bedouin souk to get tents and rope. We would buy food there, clothing, shoes. They had everything you could imagine. There were even lingerie shops in, <laughs> in the souk. There were stores that specialized in Chinese toys. But what I loved about it was that the Aleppo souk showed you, you know, every cross-section of Syrian society. There were Bedouin there in traditional garb, Ba'ath party officials, police officers, soldiers on leave, whole families lined up like geese in a file trying to work their way down these winding corridors amid all of the donkey carts. It was a lot of fun, the sights and sounds of it. You could feel the history while you were there. I mean, it sounds so romantic, and of course we now know that the romanticism has essentially been bombed out of the souk. Um, I mean, people like you, Michael, are so close to these issues about buildings and and history, and yet thousands and thousands of people in Syria are dying. And in a way, we feel, even on this program, somewhat queasy about talking about cultural heritage when all these Syrians are being killed. How does it make you feel? I can barely watch the news. Uh, Having worked in Syria and lived in the same village off and on for 20 years, Obviously, people just like family for us in the village and the people we worked with in Damascus and Aleppo, up until about four weeks ago, we had fairly regular contact with those people. But in terms of their Facebook contact, cell phone contact, that all ended at that point in time. The cultural heritage is not what's really on my mind right now. It's about trying to help those people in Syria. I saw a photo posted on Twitter the other day from Aleppo, and I, I don't even have a city to compare it to. Dresden, uh, Grozny in Chechnya, Fallujah. I mean, it, it's just shocking. I mean, I, I'm wondering how some of the sites there, like, you know, 
this ancient citadel near the, the souk uh, and other nearby sites uh, which have been hit. What have you heard about these sites? Well, I, I, I see what's on people's blogs occasionally, the things that are coming through mainly from cell phone photography. And what we're seeing is really, really shocking. You can barely recognize some of these places that we visited constantly over 20 years. The damage is hard to really imagine. The hearts of Aleppo and Holmes and Damascus have these old cities that are suffering terribly during the conflict, obviously. So I feel that really the potential for damage is far greater than what we saw previously in the Iraq conflict. Describe the citadel for us. What does it look like? What the, is it? Right at the center of the city, there's an archaeological mound that has thousands of years of archaeological deposits, on top of which is this imposing castle right in the center of the city overlooking the souk. So, of course, it's military significance. Most of the major thoroughfares in Aleppo converge in the center of that old city. That gives it particular strategic importance. The pictures that I've seen mainly show the monumental gateway, and it has clearly been nearly demolished from probably artillery rounds, rocket rounds, and, and automatic gunfire. It sounds like you're saying the fighters on both sides of the conflict in Syria see the citadel as a strategic point. Yeah, they see it as a strategic point, and I get the feeling that they all understand the value of having stories in which cultural heritage is a part of the media mix. Right. Explain that. Well, going back to the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan in May 2001, the recent rumors in Egypt about the destruction of the pyramids or the wanton destruction in Mali, I think that a lot of insurgent groups and governments understand that the cultural heritage aspect gets play, particularly in Western media. And I think that sometimes it's a case of the tail wagging the dog a little bit in terms of what's going on. I think that sometimes, obviously, these sites are purposefully targeted, and there is the psychological warfare dimension of destroying cultural heritage. We see that on both sides of the conflict. Are you saying that even having this discussion right now, we're, we're kind of playing into it? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the difficult things about talking. We really want to make people aware of what's going on. We want people to know that there's monitoring going on to try to protect these sites. But at the same time, we feed the problem, I think, a little bit. Let's move away from Aleppo to the province and see what other information you might have. I mean, there are any number of historical treasures across Syria in the city of Homs, which has been in the crosshairs almost from the start of the uprising. There's this medieval fortress called Crac des Chevaliers. It's kind of a right. mixed up French, and I don't know, yeah. Crac might be Arabic. What's happening to it? What is it? Crac des Chevaliers is a crusader fortress that was built, I believe, in the 12th century. And by most accounts, for example, Lawrence of Arabia's account, it was the best preserved castle we have, at least in the Mediterranean region. It was enormous. It had a very famous chapel inside of it, and unfortunately, we do know that it has been shelled. It was occupied probably by free Syrian army forces, and then they were dislodged, we think, from artillery fire, and that chapel was damaged during that. The oasis city also of Palmyra, we know that tanks are parked in the Roman part of the city, and the museum at the site of Palmyra has been looted reportedly by government troops who pulled up pickups and took sculpture away. Michael, what's being done within archaeological circles, uh, either in the U.S. or internationally, to try and keep the damage in Syria to a minimum? Well, currently, again, the emphasis is on trying to help our colleagues and our friends in Syria. But at the same time, we're trying to gather together as much information on what's happening as possible. And hopefully, someday, we'll get to go back and assess the damage and try to put things right again. But for my own part, I'm now working in Iraq. We've moved on to a different region. 
Michael Dante, Assistant Professor in Archaeology at Boston University. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. The widening crisis in Syria is reflected in political cartoons around the globe. You can see some of them in our latest cartoon slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. English is something of an open-source language, the people who speak it, shape it, and add to it. No one has the authority to exclude words. That affects how English is spoken by its hundreds of millions of native speakers, also how it's spoken by those who come to it as a second or third language. Those speakers are having a profound influence on English, especially in India. The World's Patrick Cox reports on Indians' changing relationship with the English language. You may have heard the term Hinglish. It's a kind of merging of Hindi and English words. This is Anand Giyadadas, author of India Calling. It's sometimes conjugating a Hindi word with an English conjugation. It's sometimes having a half-and-half sentence. It's sometimes throwing a choice Hindi word into a sentence that without it would lack the right amount of masala. Indian handicrafts, ya kuch tha? Indian handicraft, mein dune dabba bhar ke tatti bheji thi. Such? Are you sure? Am I sure? If you've seen a Bollywood film, you've probably heard some Hinglish. Giyadadas believes that Hinglish, in this modern form, is a reflection of India's newfound confidence. More on that in a bit. But what about when English first rubbed shoulders with Hindi and other Indian languages? The British ruled India for nearly 200 years. In 1886, at the height of British power there, a dictionary was published. Hobson Jobson a glossary of colloquial Anglo-Indian words and phrases, and of kindred terms, etymological, historical, geographical, and discursive, by Colonel Henry Yule and A.C. Burnell. Hobson Jobson was more than a dictionary. It was a cultural snapshot with linguistic advice for British bureaucrats and army officers. And it listed words from India that were entering English. Shampoo, pajamas, dungarees, bungalow. There is a huge delight in language that's evident throughout the dictionary. Kate Telcher is the editor of an upcoming edition of Hobson Jobson. She says Hobson Jobson's delight in language continues to be contagious. Even Indian-born writers like Salman Rushdie have written about how seductive some of those mixed-up words are. Rushdie wrote that it nearly, nearly made him regret the passing of empire in India. But you just can't get away from the linguistic power plays in Hobson Jobson. I think there is a, an almost sort of innate sense of British cultural superiority. It's in the phrases that made their way into English, and even in the use of verbs. One thing that the compilers note is that Hindustani verbs, when they travel into English, are often in the imperative form, so that they are giving orders, giving commands. But often these verbs are also about violence in some way. For instance, to pakarao is to lay hold, generally of a recalcitrant native. Uh, to gabrao is to bully. All this language obviously relates to the British colonial role. Of course, most of the words used by the British in India were English, but they sometimes took on new shades of meaning. 
Javed Majid of King's College London says Hobson Jobson sought to explain those words too. It's interesting to look at the entry for the word home in the glossary where it just quite starkly says that home refers to England. Home. Home always means England. Nobody calls India home. Not even those who have been here 30 years or more and are never likely to return to Europe. There is this kind of interesting and careful balancing act. I mean, it captures the creativity of slang and colloquialisms, but at the same time, it has to guard against both going native and becoming vulgar. And there are warnings to that effect in Hobson Jobson. The authors complain of undesirable words from India, quote, insinuating themselves into English, words like calico, chintz and gingham, which Hobson Jobson warns are lying in wait for entrance into the English literature, as if to impose some kind of linguistic reverse colonization. No one has called Hobson Jobson a study in Hinglish. The word didn't exist back then. Just as well, really, because in today's Hinglish, there's no longer colonial control of the language. And it's Indians who are choosing how and when to jump between languages. But Anand Giradas, observer of modern India, says the use of Hinglish, and for that matter the use of much more English in 21st century India, can be misinterpreted. We tend to assume from the outside that when countries modernize and have growth and getting on the cover of Newsweek and Time, that they're becoming more Western. A lot of my experience in in India suggests actually otherwise. Otherwise because English these days is spoken with a different accent, and English suffixes, or whole phrases, are often added to Hindi, turning it into Hinglish. And if I look at my cousins in India, I think they feel today more comfort speaking Hinglish and mixing Hindi into their English and speaking without a British accent that my parents were taught than my parents' generation. And that's actually about self-belief and self-confidence, which is also part of the fuel of, of India's rise. Indian English may have its roots in a history of imperial rule, but it doesn't sound like that anymore. It sounds light and playful. Wait a minute. Oh my God, you're such a loser. <laughs> For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. To hear a BBC documentary on Indian English and Hobson Jobson, check out Patrick's World in Words podcast. Go to theworld.org slash language. Now, here's another example of what happens when the colonists and colonized meet on cultural turf. The end of the Beatles, some said, marked the true end of the British Empire. And one of the former British colonies, Nigeria, is where Afrobeat king Fela Kuti was from. And he was all about rejecting the influence of colonial power. So take one part Beatles, mix vigorously with an equal dose of Fela, and this is what you get, Afro Beatles. This is a mashup of the Beatles' Get Back, of course, with Fela's classic track, Colonial Mentality. It comes courtesy of DJ Rich Medina and producer Mark Hines. Hines says the pairing makes sense, musically and lyrically. It's, you know, speaking to the colonial power of London, but at the same time, it's investigating, you know, that relationship between the power and, and, and oppressed. And so 
you know, looking at colonial mentality, which is about Africans getting back to a true sense of self instead of a distorted one that may have been overlaid on them through the uh, colonization projects. Um, it offers an opportunity for a revolutionary mindset. Producer Mark Hines there on the Beatles' Fela mashup. It also makes sense for historical reasons. You can find out more about the implausible McCartney-Fela connection that led to the Wings album Band on the Run, as in they wanted to run away from Nigeria. I've got a blog post today about that crazy story. And we've got more Afro Beatles, including a great video of Fela Kuti supposedly watching the old Beatles cartoon. That's all at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll get back with you tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.